Welcome back to another episode of Sean and Ed's Do Baseball. I'm Sean. And I'm Ed's. And we're doing baseball. Yeah, it caught you off guard again this you, week. Always, always. We are a baseball. Bi-weekly baseball history podcast. You stole that from me. You weren't going to say it. <laughs> I know I wasn't. Uh, if you don't know the format, uh, we're two friends talking baseball history. One of us looks up a subject, person, place, thing, event, uh, and tells it to the other. Yeah, without the other knowing what the story is going to be about. You can follow us on Twitter at Doing Baseball and Instagram at Doing Dot Baseball. Uh, find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I imagine you've already found us on one of those platforms. So tell your friends to find us on whatever platform they use. So give us a review and a rating because that helps us get more exposure. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks so much. We're going to be talking about a lot today. Uh, first off, we want to give a shout out uh, to JP uh, from our last episode. We had a guest. Uh, we said at the end of that episode he'd be joining us for this episode. Uh, unfortunately, he had to go out and get some gardening supplies, so uh, he won't be joining us. But this episode is for him. Yeah, we dedicate this to JP's bad back. I'll... <laughs> uh, this will hopefully help ease the pain uh, because this one is absolutely ridiculous. I could not, Edzy, I couldn't understand how this story just kept going. Uh, I was going to say, like a week and a half ago, you said you were almost done. I know. And, and it's, you did not say you were done until there's so much, much less so than this, a week and a half ago. This could have been three episodes. I want this to be one episode. You might be listening to this, and it's going to say part one. Then it's two episodes. But I think we can try to get this all in in one episode uh, if I just shut up and stop rambling because there's so much to cover here. So uh, check out our old episodes. Uh, the last one is actually fantastic as a lead into this episode uh, about all the teams moving around back in the 70s and the Giants almost coming to Toronto. Um uh, so here we go. You ready for this? I'm ready. All right. So in this episode, or episodes, whatever it ends up being. In this story. In this story, we're going to talk about mules, mustaches, robotic rabbits, and orange balls. This story is about what? a man that is celebrated for his innovations, but also reviled by almost everyone. He created a dynasty and changed the game forever but was a tyrant behind the scenes and hated by his players and staff. Today, we are talking about none other than legendary owner Charlie Charles O. Finley. Finley. <laughs> yes. I knew this guy was going to be an episode uh, at some point. Oh my God. So if you, if you listened to the previous episode, uh, it did talk about uh, the, how the A's came, came to be, and we'll be touching on that in much more detail in this episode. Uh, so Charles Oscar Finley was born February 22nd, 1918 in Ensley, Alabama, now part of the greater, greater Birmingham area. He was the middle child of three kids to his parents, Oscar and Emma Finley. Oscar worked at the local steel mill in Birmingham. Charles was a bat boy for the Birmingham Broncos when he was young and loved playing baseball. Probably a good part of that is because he was a bat boy at a very young age. Mm -hmm. uh, he was also a keen businessman, even from a young age, and that would lead him to mow six lawns a day, or a mow lawn six days a week, not okay. six lawns a day. <laughs> I was going to say, that is very <laughs> ambitious. Uh, and he eventually organized a crew of neighborhood boys to help. So he like basically at like, you know, 10 or 12 ran his own landscaping crew in, in his little community. I wouldn't community. be cutting grass on Saturday if it wasn't fun. <laughs> well, it sounded like he, he was... Tom Sawyer them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was just sitting in the garage counting the money. Um so Finley attended Ensley High School, but in 1933, his father was laid off and the family moved to Gary, Indiana, once described as the city of the century or the magic city. 
especially at that time when they had a booming steel industry. And was this? 1933. Okay. Uh, the town was thriving with a huge steel mill economy. Nowadays, Gary is generally described as the ashtray of the Great Lakes region or the, f- or the most miserable city in America. What a fall from grace. <laughs> I'm not making up the most miserable city in America. It was actually named that by a publication. What uh, a miserable publication. <laughs> like, you know what? Let's project this onto the city of Gary, Indiana. Uh, Finley graduated high school in Gary and went on to work at the steel plant. In 1941, he married his wife, Shirley McCartney, and the couple started a family. Uh, They would go on to have eight children. Finley had begun selling insurance on the side of his regular work and ended up being a fantastic salesman. He ended up quitting the steel plant and went to work uh, in insurance sales and set the record for the Gary Gary Insurance Company that he worked for. Hmm, Good for him. He was also a ball player. He actually played on some semi-pro baseball teams. As we know, he loved baseball growing up uh, Mm -hmm. and played growing up. So he played on some semi-pro teams uh, in the southern Illinois or, I guess, northern Illinois and uh, northern Indiana area. But that all came crashing down in 1946, when at the age of 28, Finley almost died from a bout of tuberculosis. Oh, shit. He battled through it, and oddly, with the help of his wife's obstetrician, which I had to look up. That's a person that helps with, like, pregnancies and births and stuff like that. So, And that helped with his tuberculosis I, somehow? Uh, somehow they were, like, a mental coach. They were like, don't die. And he was like, I won't. Okay. <laughs> so, so they formed a friendship somehow, and, and that right. helped so them both through. like a life... Uh, doula is that yeah weird? sure sure kept him alive because he was hospitalized for two and a half years so he spent 28 29 and part of 30 in the hospital wow um so he managed to pull through and while in the hospital came up with the idea to sell doctors and shirt and surgeons group medical insurance okay so he was just sitting in the hospital being like you people how much do you, you got to Hey, you're a doctor. What are you gonna pay for a doctor? I'll. Yeah. He's always closing. Yeah, always, always. Okay. Uh, so with that idea, he made his own company. Finley made a fortune through this because he was one of the first to to group a profession together to to offer group insurance policies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Even before he made his fortune, though, Finley would drive prospective clients through the richest neighborhoods in Gary and point out houses that he claimed to own but was in the process of renovating. Yeah, fake it to make it. Fake it. He says, I own that. We can't go in there. Construction. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He did make millions eventually, and his business was based in a skyscraper in downtown Chicago, which is not very far from Gary, Indiana. Uh, He ended up purchasing a ranch in La Porta, uh, Indiana, uh, about an hour outside of Chicago in 1956. So it was about a half decade later, five, six years later, after mm-hmm. he's, he's made his money real quick. Right. Uh, the property featured an 11-room manor with numerous barns, stables, and outbuildings. Goddamn. That wasn't good enough for Finley, though. It wasn't. Finley left the 11-room manor to his ranch hands and caretakers and built a gaudy mansion on the property that is reportedly had a strong strong resemblance to the White House. Because <laughs> why not? Because <laughs> why not? Um, Finley was rich beyond most people's wildest dreams and set out to buy something not many people can afford. A baseball team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Literally any baseball team. He, he just, just didn't care. He didn't care. There was no single team he really wanted he wanted a baseball team and he was obsessed with buying his own club in 1954 he attempted to buy the philadelphia a's from the mack family he ended up losing the bid to local chicago real estate magnate arnold johnson johnson then moved the team to kansas city finley tried to buy the tigers and the white Sox, but failed and he even lobbied the league to be owner of the new expansion team the los angeles angels he lost out on that too okay but He's committed, clearly. He's, he's committed. And in 1960, Arnold Johnson dies. That's the guy that bought that's the, the athletics guy. Yeah, okay. He bought the athletics. And he's moved them to Kansas City they're, already? Yep, they're in Kansas City. Okay. 
So Finley jumped to purchase the A's uh, from from his estate. Uh, Finley paid $1.975 million to the widow of Arnold Johnson for 52% of the Kansas City Athletics. Okay. He was now an owner and soon became uh, also became chairman of the board. Over the next year, he would buy out all the other investors and took full control over the struggling club. Okay. So... Not surprised. Not surprised Not at surprised all. Not surprised based on, I mean, based on hindsight, knowing what I know about Charles Finley, but um, <laughs> yeah. So he just immediately tries yeah. to consolidate power all the way. Um, it's probably a good thing he did because I don't know if a lot of the crazy things that he did would have <laughs> happened if he had to answer to shareholders. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's get into the first, the first of this. So his first move Finley made was bringing in trader Frank Lane from Cleveland to be his general manager. A former football player turned baseball. Trader exec. Frank Lane? His real name is Frank Lane, but Trader's his nickname. Because he trades guys? Oh, yeah, he trades guys. Okay. <laughs> Lane, and let's just say Lane gives uh, gives Finley a little bit of a, you know, he, he is how Finley thinks that, that, that team should be run and kind of influences him for the rest of his career. So Finn... Lane was a former football player turned baseball executive. Lane had been in baseball since 1933, starting as traveling secretary for the Cincinnati Reds. Eventually, he worked his way up to assistant GM with the team, and in 1948, Lane became GM of the Chicago White Sox. Over this, and over seven years with the White Sox, he made 241 trades. Holy shit. <laughs> 241? Yeah, that makes... Over seven years. It makes Jerry DePoto of the Mariners look like nothing. That is ridiculous. Uh, it is ridiculous. So he did that. Uh, Was there... I don't know if you like have this fact or not, but it, like I wonder if anyone actually lasted through the entire tenor. Oh yeah, that that could be a whole other episode, I'm guessing. But no, I have no idea. But two hundred. I mean, I'm sure there was a minor, but there wasn't as many minor league. Mm-hmm. It was just. And this was at the time of the reserve clause too. Correct? Oh yeah, hundred yeah. um, percent. So uh, that's where he got his name, Trader. Uh, so Frank Lane then moved on to St. Uh, St. Louis, where he tried to trade Stan Musial, causing ownership to step in and stop him. No he had kidding. a trade in place for the for Stan Musial, and the owner you can't was, trade the best player in a generation. Yeah. I'm Trader. Yeah, yeah. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> they don't call me Trader. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, Trader Lane. Um, so he tried to <laughs> tried to trade say Trader Joe too. Yeah, I was like Trader Joe. Fucking. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't remember his name for a second. <laughs> uh, so then he went on to work for Cleveland and is remembered in infamy there for trading popular slugger Rocky Colavito to the Detroit Tigers for Harvey Kuhn. Uh, it was resulted in the so-called curse of Colavito. So the, the, you know, we talked about it a little bit in the major league episode. The, the uh, Cleveland was not good in mm-hmm. the 1950s or it were great in the 1950s. And then at the end of the 1950s, they, they started off to, a cliff yeah. And, and apparently, yeah. For yeah. So Rocky, years. Rocky Colavito was, was apparently the, the cursed trade. Although I did look up and Harvey Kuhn was not, no slouch, mm-hmm. but uh, that that was they were pissed. Uh, Vito actually ends up coming back around a little bit, but I don't think I don't even know if I mention it. Um, so Finley clearly wanted someone to come in and make a quick fix in Kansas City. Kansas City sucked; they yeah. were not good at this time. He well, said they were able to be sold. I guess. Yeah. Well, the guy. Well, died. the guy died. Yeah, but. the guy died. Um, but they were in financial clearly disarray. No. Family didn't want anything to do with it. No, they sold it right away. So he signed the bold new GM to an eight-year deal. Frank Lane wouldn't even last one season. Uh, Finley immediately began interfering and criticizing the man he hired. Lane had almost 30 years experience at this point in baseball, but Finley was certain that he was right. So... so that Finley was right. Yeah. <laughs> Not so, the man so, that has worked in baseball for three decades. So did Lane leave or did Finley say, I know better and get rid of him? Uh, you'll see. So as we can guess, Lane didn't depart on good terms, calling Finley an egotist and a liar, as well as launching a lawsuit that would drag on a, for a few years. So he wanted to leave and Finley wouldn't let him out really? of his contract. That seems like a not a good business decision. No. So, but still, he left halfway through the season. 
So this is 1961, the inaugural season with Finley as owner. He hires this guy in the offseason. This guy starts making moves. And by August, he's like, fuck this. I'm gone. You're a fucking ego You're prick. You're a dick. Yeah. yeah. So he's wanting to leave. But then, of course, there's a whole lawsuit because he's signed to an eight-year contract. And he's trying to get out of the contract. Uh, it's the whole thing. So that's what I mean. This story, like I could have gone, I could have gone into more detail on that. So on August 22nd, 1961, Finley hired Frank Lane's replacement, a man by the name of Pat Friday. Did Pat Friday have almost 30 years of baseball experience? No. Pat Friday ran an insurance office in Chicago. Pat Friday's baseball <laughs> career started on Friday. Yeah. <laughs> this exact Friday to be. <laughs> Finley hired the man who ran his Chicago insurance office, a man with base- zero baseball front office experience, and that man would remain GM for four whole seasons. Four whole seasons. The, Starting in 61. Yeah. Okay. So the, the reason... For this, of course, was Finley just wanted a yes man. Okay. Finley wanted to run the team himself. Right. He did, Why didn't he just make himself the general manager? Well, he does eventually. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he did as Finley said and was truly Finley. Uh, it, but yeah, so it was truly Finley that was the GM, even though Friday got the business card. So mm-hmm. Finley hired Joe Gordon to manage. Gordon would last just 60 games. Apparently, Finley himself would inspect and approve Gordon's lineup cards. Holy shit. Uh, Talk about micromanage. After Gordon, Finley hired his right fielder to manage the team. In the middle of a game, or at least in the warm-up to a game or something, he got the PA announcer to say over the speaker system, Hank Bauer, your playing days are over. You have been named manager of the Kansas City A's. (laughs) Did he still get to play? No, your playing days are over. Like, just getting the dugout and make a lineup. (laughs) That seems crazy. I know. Maybe he was a little bit of a player, like, because he was slated to play right field, apparently. He just didn't make him a player manager. He was just like, you're the manager yeah. now. Well, that's what he told the Take your cleats PA off. announcer. Hank Bauer, your playing days are over. You've been named the new manager of the Kansas City A's. So, and this is not the first time that Finley would force the PA announcer to do what he said either. I didn't think it would be. Uh, <laughs> In the first year under Finley's ownership, in, uh, the Kansas City Athletics lost 100 games. Ooh. It would never get much better for the team in Kansas City. Um, with things not getting better in Kansas City, Finley openly complained about the city and the ballpark. He explored relocation to multiple cities almost right away after purchasing the team. Mm-hmm. Oakland being one of them. He tried to move the team to Louisville and even signed a lease in 1964 but failed to mention it to the American League. Mm. So he just went and signed a lease. Uh, When the league got word, they immediately voted down the move. This was also the first time uh, the rest of the owners considered expelling Finley from the league. And I say the first time. The first time, yeah. Uh, So the deal to... Louisville got got taken away, so he didn't get to do that. Finley did everything he could uh, to advertise the team at first. He put firework displays on, not just after the game, but sometimes during the game as well. uh, This irritated locals who lived by the stadium, and Finley was told to cease uh, by the local government, who he sued, of course, for telling him to not shoot fireworks up. Uh, there was a zoo behind it's left. Not right. Shoot fireworks. <laughs> I got. I'm, I'm an American. Yeah. Shoot fireworks. I shoot fireworks in the third inning. Sometimes during the fifth. If there's a pitcher I don't like in the seventh, there's fireworks. Did you know that it's always July in the fourth <laughs> inning? So it's always fireworks. Um, so not only this. So he had a zoo, a petting zoo in left field as well as a sheep pasture and a shepherd beyond right field. It was a 14-year-old boy, a ball boy, dressed up uh, with a long fake beard and a staff. He got dressed up as a shepherd tending the flock out in right field. Uh, Not only that, but the sheep were dressed and painted with A's logos. (laughs) He had us paint the sheep up on the hillside in different colors, said George Tama, an A's groundskeeper. (laughs) What? So Finley was like, go paint those sheep. (laughs) (laughs) I would question why there was sheep in the first place. Exactly. 
Well, it was Kansas City, so it's a big farming community, but still, it's a little ridiculous. He released helium balloons full of A's tickets into the sky. And just like, well, someone will find these and they get free tickets to the A's games. Uh, he hired Miss USA to be a Batgirl. He better lit the dugouts so fans could see into them more and they could see the managers discussing strategy. I guess that was the whole thing. Like, if we could just see the managers talking, they'll come out to the game more. Yeah, because that's what they're here for. <laughs> um, okay, and now, like, even... Starting to question oh, some of his business well, decisions. The, the weirdest of all was that he installed a robotic rabbit that would pop up and hand the umpire fresh baseballs. Oh, I think I've seen that. Yeah, you've there's definitely. There's like a door right next to Yeah, there's to him like a like robot up. rabbit that like, oh, it was, it's a pretty weird sight. Um, so that, that, that's what he did early on. Um, and, oh, okay, I haven't have more to this. Oh yeah, I added more. So him and man- and promotional manager Jim Schafe put on Automobile Industry Night where they would dress up cars and give them away to fans as is. So by dress up, I mean, like, fix them up, I guess. This meant that the winning fans could drive the car off the lot, but there was no guarantee the car would get much further than that, sometimes just breaking down right away. So they'd pimp my ride these shit boxes and then... Just make them look good. Yeah. And And it it might be like a brand new car, or it could be uh, like a shit box that's not even going to... Oh, It's a great contest. Yeah, but you're going to... Like, all of those promotions... I don't think that one's a bad idea. All of those promotions right feel like they were crafted by a lunatic um but finley okay. did actually have some genius ideas tucked away like that one yeah <laughs> <laughs> he introduced sleeveless tops in 1962 and introduced the famous athletics green and yellow the following year eventually yeah. he yeah. made there was like a whole slew of uniforms. Like they had like eight different uniform combinations or something at some point. Mm-hmm. He also brought in the white sneakers, which nobody wore at the time. Outside of baseball, Finley was also able to convince the Beatles to come and play in Kansas City at his stadium in 1964. Amazing. Paying them 150000 for the show, a record uh, for a single concert at the time. So he's doing some, doing some positive things. He's, yeah. he's branded well, and he's, he's bringing in the Beatles, making Kansas City happy. So now back to Pro- the... Cr- probably pleasing the rest of the MOB owners a little bit at this yeah. point. Now back to the crazy. At 4 o'clock in the morning, okay. Finley called Shafe and told him to find the finest mule in the state of Missouri. <laughs> in 1960... 1960- like literal mule. Well, a Missouri mule, more, more to be more specific. Right. Okay. Uh, um, Finley, <laughs> I, I don't know if I have to make sure I didn't include this, but yeah, Finley had been watching a, a history documentary on how the Missouri mule had helped in the war effort and decided that this was a good idea, especially in Missouri. Okay. <laughs> um, State pride. In 1965, he introduced Kansas City's newest mascot, a mule aptly named... Charlie O. I'm going to name this mule after myself. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. So I'm a jackass. <laughs> pretty much. It's funny. It's like, if, I don't know if it was. Self-deprecating. I don't know if it was. I don't know if it was just him being an egotist or if it was a brilliant piece of self-deprecation. But the mule had a pen at the park and was a constant presence with the team. One time, Finley even walked in onto the field with Charlie O through the center field gate without realizing the game had already started. So it's just the owner and a mule just wandering through center field. And the umpires just being like, uh, time? <laughs> what are you doing? Oh, we're just going for a walk. Um, he, I wonder if it was like I wonder if it was like a political thing because like wasn't didn't well, Connie Mack make the symbol the elephant? Well, that's I that's an amazing like I I didn't even I'm sure we could even get into that. I wonder but if it was like they, Charlie O could be his own 
episode too. Like that's what I mean. That's when I said this could be multiple episodes. There could mm. be a Charlie episode. So he took the fourteen hundred pound mule on road trips. Like this isn't a small donkey, right? Like this is a mule, so it's like a half horse. Fourteen hundred pounds. Fourteen hundred pounds. I saw a more specific weight that was more like twelve hundred ninety-four pounds. Still a big fucking yeah, mule. Let's go with this general estimate here. It's got its own rooms with hotels and with the team. So Finley would ride Charlie O through hotel lobbies and sometimes even bring him to the bank with him. They didn't want their ball clubs cursed. So <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the White Sox, the Chicago White Sox, refused to let the mule onto the field one day. Uh Finley, being from the area, as we know, immediately organized a protest outside Comiskey Park. He even hired beautiful models and a six-piece full band. Uh, Finley managed to, like, so they're protesting out front, like, causing a whole commotion. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Finley managed to sneak, sneak the mule into the stadium using, like, <laughs> a delivery company and, like, a big crate. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's insane. It is this such is... an elaborate plan for, like... <laughs> just just because he was mad the that payoff. the donkey wasn't allowed. Yeah. Or the I'll show you. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> once inside, Charlie O found his way onto the field, and the game was delayed as umpire and grounds crew tried to corral the animal. <laughs> So he holds his big protest and then sneaks the the mule in and just lets it loose on the field during the game. Like just anyways, fans and press love Charlie O, but the attendance still went down. The mule got more press than we did in a way because he was treated pretty good, said A's pitcher Blue Moon Odom. He was taken care of better than we were. <laughs> oh, shit. So, Charles Finley loved this donkey, or mule, to be more specific. Mm-hmm. But, like, just, like, it's one thing to have it as a mascot. It's another to just be like, well, it gets its own room, and it's the nicer room than, you know, it's a mule. <laughs> you guys are baseball players. You understand. Yeah. <laughs> the fans? Okay. <laughs> Finley brought in a 59-year-old Satchel Page to pitch a few games and had Bert Campanaris uh, play all nine positions in a single game. Nothing worked, and now the antics were getting sad. Whitey, Whitey Herzog, the manager in 1965, had seen enough. This is nothing more than a damn sideshow. Winning over here is a joke. So... Finley at this point had installed a front office of family members, friends, and yes men's from his days in the insurance company. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was quite convinced he he was the brightest mind in baseball, and he was kind of right for a few things. He was an early proponent of the DH and interleague play. He wanted more games at night, especially the World Series and All Star games. Right, but like everything, those are smart. Yeah, those, those are, are very smart. smart. Uh, but like everything, his good ideas get, got mixed in with all the wild ones. At one point early in his tenure in Kansas City, he painted the fences citrus yellow and the foul poles fluorescent pink. He tried to convince the what? owners to paint the bases and baselines bright multicolors. Why? I, he, was, he was an innovator. He was, he was like, yeah. let's do this. That should be blue. Stuff. That base should be blue. That base should be green. That base should be red. And the foul lines could be purple. All of them. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he, I don't know why he thought doing these uh, these aesthetic changes would, would increase fans' uh, joy of the game, but it could. Um After 1965, Finley seemingly gave up on Kansas City, though. He was criticized in the last years for not even trying to sell tickets. After his uh, incident where he tried to sell the team to Louisville, basically the owners and the the league and the city made him sign a four-year lease to guarantee that he would not pull that shit again for at least a few more years. So, But he was just like, oh, well, fuck this. I'm stuck here. I don't like them. I'm not even going to try. So he was criticized for not even trying to sell tickets. He gave the cold shoulder to booster clubs and didn't put any effort into renewing season tickets. He cut costs and cut back on promotions. Finley was bitter towards Kansas City and baseball. Finley had played with the stadium dimensions. Yeah, Finley played with the stadium dimensions constantly. This is ridiculous. (laughs) He moved the fences in and out depending on his liking. Like... 
Like, not during games, but, like, year to year. Oh, okay. Yeah, like, maybe even during the season. I don't know. I was going to say, like... He he eventually... This month, the stadium's going to be 425 (laughs) to center, and next month, it's going to be 418. Well, you'll see. So, he eventually... He ordered his grounds crew to give the field the exact same dimensions of Yankee Stadium. When the commissioner told him the rule that Yankee Stadium has the grandfathered into, so it doesn't have to abide by it, was that home plate to the foul pole must be at least 325 feet. Finley stuck with the dimensions, but about five feet of fence before the foul pole, jet nearly straight back to to 325 feet where where the foul pole met the fence. So it's like short porch, short porch, but then there's a jagged corner that goes right yeah. down the foul line to touch the pen. So he's being Jeez. spiteful, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. He's just like, fuck you. I, I'm going to... He's like, finding a loophole yeah. and he's jumping through it. Yeah. After the commissioner ordered all the fences moved back, Finley marked the area in play that would have been... That wouldn't be at Yankee Stadium... That wouldn't be in play at Yankee Stadium and ordered his PA announcer... To say that would have been a homer in Yankee Stadium any time a fly ball was hit into that area. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, so I like that. Yeah, that's that's absolutely just like tries to find a loophole, and they're like, "No, you can't do that." And he's just like, "Fine, fuck you. I'm just going to try to embarrass you." Uh, Finley, as you can guess, hated the Yankees. The Yankees at the time were just coming out of their late 50s, early 60s dynasty era, and Finley was clearly jealous. Finley threatened to put up a statue of Connie Mack in left field because the Yankees had their monument alley. He said, they let the Yankees have monuments out there in the playing area, but if I put one up, they'd probably try to run me out of baseball. (laughs) So he's just being spiteful. He's also probably right. Yeah. I mean, the Yankees were a dynasty, and he wanted... He hated that they had success, but they were also getting, you know, the unfair treatment, I guess you could say. Uh, they were getting preferized treatment uh, from the league. So the next year, for some reason, after this whole fence debacle, Finley moved the fence back and added a 40-foot high wall. <laughs> This was most likely due to Kansas City pitchers allowing 220 home runs, a major league record that would last until 1987 the previous year. Mm-hmm. From then on, Kansas City was a pitcher's park. So he does right. this crazy stuff, moving the fences in, but then he his pitchers get lit up and he's just like, fine, screw it. Like, yeah. So behind the scenes, the organization was actually getting better, even though Finley didn't give a shit about promoting uh, they signed some considerable young talent, including Hall of Famers Catfish Hunter and Raleigh Fingers. And in 1965, they had the top pick in uh, the the inaugural draft and picked Rick Monday. The following year, with the second pick overall, they drafted Reggie Jackson. So uh-huh. things are starting there. They're, good picks. they're getting some, yeah, they're signing players. They're getting some young players. Uh, things were looking up for the franchise and some predicted great things ahead. But in 1967... Things did not improve, and an incident in August of that year pinned the players against Finley. Finley had suspended pitcher Lou Krause uh, for an incident on a commercial flight the team the team was on on their way home from Boston. The players blamed Finley's go-betweens and publicly stated they disagreed with the suspension, saying there was no reason to single out Krause for the incident. So Finley wasn't on this flight, but apparently there was some kerfuffle, mm-hmm. and Krause liked to drink and... Stuff and and something happened that was an embarrassment to the team. So is that what he means, like by go betweens, like going and getting the stories, like well, he said, she said, kind of thing, and then basing it on. Yeah, I think I think that that's what they say more than what actually maybe happened. Yes, exactly. So so, but either way, Finley suspends Kraus, and the team speaks up against the suspension. Finley saw this as insubordination and fired manager Alvin Dark because he had known what the players were going to say and didn't let Finley know ahead of time. Ken Harrelson, one of the best players on the team, called Finley a menace to baseball. Finley responded by releasing Harrison, who batted 305, who was batting 305 at the time. Harrelson eventually ended up with the Red Sox and was an all-star the following year, hitting 35 home runs and finishing third in MVP voting. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
So just didn't care. Just yeah, was like, yeah. oh, you're going to be insubordinate and talk back to me? You're released. Yeah. Bye. Yeah. Uh, not only that, but his release and subsequent free agency led to the led to the rule that players needed to pass through waivers once they're released by a team. So mm. because it they was... they just let him go and the yeah, Red Sox were just like, yoink. Well, and yeah, and the Major League... Basically, Major League Baseball was trying to curtail free agency at the time. Right. Uh, so to have a good player just released mid-season, they were like, oh, no, he has to go through waivers first just uh-huh. to like stop from it turning into a bidding war and... And, you know, players being like, oh, well, that was like turned out well. So yeah. he was able to get snatched up by a different team for nothing instead of negotiating on the open market. Oh, OK. Uh, which MLB at the time did not want to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we kind of get into that later, too. So that's how he ended up with the Red Sox was by going through waivers. Not Yes. Just- yeah. He was released. And then they they, they were like, oh, he's going to be a free agent. And then MLB's like, well, actually, we're putting in a new rule that if you're released, oh, you have to go okay. through it. That's okay. what I mean. His release thought, led to that rule being I thought you meant like he was released. He signed with the Red Sox. And then they were like, oh, shit. No, like, no. Well, they either way. We need so, a different process so <laughs> he doesn't end up with a team that's good or whatever. Yeah. I don't know if the Red Sox were good in the mid-60s. But. Yeah, yeah. Well, so players sought a hearing with the commissioner because the players, he released that one player, but they're all fighting still with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Finley promised retribution uh, against any player who participated in the hearing so the players like we want a hearing and finley's like you're all fired if you've been in the <laughs> newly fo- the newly formed players union and marvin miller got involved and it culminated in a 14 hour long meeting with the commissioner both sides ended up backing down but finley made his mark and was now very much on the radar of the newly formed players union as well as making another poor impression on the commissioner's office mm-hmm. uh at the end of 19 19- so he's kind of public enemy number one on both sides oh yeah everyone hates him yeah uh at the end of 1967 the lease finley had signed was up and it was and it so that it was for yeah what am i saying at the end of 1967, the lease was up, uh, and Finley's Athletics took their green and gold uniforms out west. In 1968, the inaugural season as the team we now know as the Oakland Athletics. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, he as soon as he could, he got out of there, and what he was able to do was, uh, we'll we'll get into it here. But yeah, he was able to convince everybody to just let him out of the thing. Yeah, um, but. As we talked about in the last episode, Kansas City gets an expansion team out of it too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, yeah, the historic athletics organization it's had a classic l- situation of like nobody showing up because the team's terrible, and then and then they go to relocate, and everyone's like, whoa, 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 whoa. hold on, hold yeah. on, yeah. Well, they were bad. So the historic they they the A's athletics organization had been in Kansas City for thirteen years, and they had never won more than seventy four games. Ooh, yeah. So they didn't have much to cheer about. So it makes sense. There, uh, there would be a new Kansas City expansion team. Finley had gained votes slowly uh, to allow the change of scenery and was ecstatic for the team's move. The city of Oakland made Finley sign a 20-year lease, knowing about his antics. Yeah, uh, probably a good idea. The athletics immediately started getting better. Uh, from season one in Oakland in 1968, they won 82 games. Then in 88 and 89. Uh, 68 sorry, 69 sorry 68 and 69 they won 88 and 89 games okay coming in second in 1969 and 1970 better than they had in years the team was knocking at the door players like Reggie Jackson Rick Monday Burt Campanaris led uh, the talented group of young position players and the rotation of Catfish Hunter Blue Moon Odom and Chuck Dobson were all coming into their prime while even younger players like Gene Tennis, Raleigh Fingers, and Vita Blue were making their debuts. Mm. Finley, what a roster. I know. It's amazing. You know? That's what I mean. This could be the second part, just this these next like five years. Finley uh, was still... <laughs> Finley, though. <laughs> he had purchased, uh, as well, the California Golden Seals, an NHL hockey team, and the Memphis Tams, an American League base, or uh, American Basketball Association team. Okay. So he was expanding his repertoire, but he still... Yeah focused clearly on the A's. Yeah. Uh, in 1970, he showed As his... As you would, because if you don't know, those other teams... Well, I don't know about the basketball team, but yeah. the Seals were awful. Yeah. 
Yeah, but he was just per- buying up sports franchises. So he showed his ugly side again publicly. Disp- uh, he publicly disparaged Reggie Jackson in 1970, who was holding out for a contract. Eventually, the commissioner would step in and settle the matter. And this would happen again a few years later with Vita Blue. Finley was brutal when it came to negotiations and fought tooth and nail for every penny, making his contempt for his best players known widely. He was a micromanager at every level, including knowing best how much his star players should be paid. So, basically, here's an excerpt from the the Sabre article written from uh, Mark Amor. Mark Armour? Mark Amor or Mark Armour? So, Finley ran the entire operation to an extent that was startling. Not only made all the baseball decisions in Oakland, deciding who to draft, who to sign, making trades, suggesting the lineup, advertising in-game strategy, he often wrote the copy for the yearbook, made out a song list for the organist, decided the menu for the press room during the World Series, designed the uniforms, Finley had to approve all injuries before the player could be put on the disabled list. Not surprisingly, he went through office staffers at an alarming pace. People will soon tire of being screamed at, humiliated, and treated, as one former employee puts it, worse than animals. And since we know how he treated that fucking mule, probably correct. Yeah. <laughs> so that sounds awful. Yeah. Sounds like an awful place to work. Exactly. Even with that, Finley was known to be quite generous as well, handing out impromptu bonuses to players for in-game achievements, like a game-winning home run or pitching a perfect game. He reprimanded. He was reprimanded multiple times by the commissioner's office, and to this day, non-contractual bonuses are not allowed. So he would just give out money if you made him happy. Right. Um, so he was he was crazy rich. <laughs> just uh, Finley kept up his wild ideas too. He tried to get the owners to adro- to adopt a three-ball walk. Uh, and uh, actually used it in one preseason game in 1971. Three ball walk. Yes. So just like and a three ball strike. I think it was a two ball, a two ball strike, or, or it two might have been strike, two or, strikeout. Yeah, two I strike, guess. strike. Whatever. There was so in that one game they tried it. There was 19 walks. <laughs> Holy shit! No yeah. kidding. So it was never tried again after that. Yeah. Um, he got approval to use gold colored bases during the A's home opener. Uh, okay, that would be cool. Yeah. Um, the gold bases were fitting because the Oakland A's were about to add a lot of gold to their trophy case. In okay. 1971, mm-hmm. the A's won 101 games and the AL West Division title. It was the most wins for the franchise since 1931. At age 21, Vita Blue started 39 games, pitched over 300 innings, and put up a ridiculous 1.82 ERA. Holy shit. Over, like, it was, I think it was 312 or 312 and a third. Like, just wild numbers. Yeah. He took home both the AL MVP and Cy Young. It didn't matter, though. The A's were swept in the five-game division series by Brooks Robinson and the Orioles. Wow. Really? So, during the offseason... Inspired by his, and that was what seventy one. Yes, seventy one. And so, the Orioles won in sixty nine, right? I believe something like that. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere around there. So they're a good team. They were a good team. That's what I mean. Brooks Robinson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so during the off season, Finley made a big move on November 29th, nineteen seventy one. He traded star center fielder Rick Monday to the Cubs for starting left-handed pitcher Ken Holtzman. Mm-hmm. Holtzman would solidify an already deep rotation over the next few years as the A's turned into a dynasty. Charlie didn't stop there. In 1972, he made 19 trades, nine of them during the season. So he... Following the footsteps of old Trader Lane. Trader Lane, yeah. So manager Dick Williams joked that he found out about trades by seeing who was in the dugout when he showed up for work. <laughs> <laughs> So not only was Finley wheeling and dealing, but he also found a way for the team to be distinctive. Reggie Jackson showed up to spring training sporting a mustache. Finley did not approve and asked Jackson to shave it off. At the time, ballplayers were clean-shaven, and a simple mustache was seen as taboo from the brass and much of baseball's traditional fan base, which, mm-hmm. once again, you know, they're old white people. Yeah. Right? But, I mean, if you look back, like, in the early 1900s, the mustache, like, all the players had mustaches. Yeah. But it, from, like, the, from, like, the 30s until, like, the late 60s and stuff, it was very... Cl- yeah, they were stuff. clean cut. You could say your watch to. 
So Jackson did not comply with Finley, as we know the relationship was not warm. But instead of acting out in anger, as Finley normally did, he used it as a promotion. He offered every player and coach a $300 bonus if they grew a mustache by opening day. $300 was a lot of money. For most people, that's how much money you made per week mm-hmm. for a good player. Yeah. So everyone was very excited. So Raleigh Fingers probably... It's easy money. Yeah. It's easy money. It's easy money. So Raleigh Fingers, probably the most famous mustache in baseball history, said, on opening day, he gave us all our checks. We got 300 bucks out of Charlie, and that was all that mattered. (laughs) (laughs) That's what they were really... So Raleigh Fingers grew his mustache just to spite... Charles Finley. Yeah. Like, it wasn't even like, great idea. It was just like, what? You're going to give me money and I get to screw you, old man? And then indirectly was branded. The brand was born. Exactly. Uh, so he followed up with promotion. So mustache night took place on Father's Day, June 18th, 1972. The promotion let in mustache fans for free. Uh, the A's were good and many of the players kept their mustaches for superstitious reasons not wanting to shave them after the A's hot start. Many embraced this new freedom and started growing long hair and sideburns to accompany the mustaches. This was the start of the Mustache Gang, a group that would dominate baseball for the next three seasons. The Uh Mustache A's won the pennant and faced off against the clean-cut Reds in the World Series. Pitching dominated... Uh, the first four games of the series, both teams combined to score just 14 runs in the first four games. So that's like, you know, it was a lot of 2-1 games. Yeah. Um, but the A's deep pitching edged out the Rays to give the A's a 3-1 series lead. The Reds came storming back, squeezing across, squeezing across a run in the 8th and ninth of Game 5 to come back and stay alive. The Reds won Game 6 handily, and the momentum was in their favor heading into the do-or-die Game 7 in Cincinnati. But the mustache gang prevailed. Gene Tennis and Sal Bandos, back-to-back doubles in the sixth, put them up 3-1. And Raleigh Fingers would finish the game. Finley's A's won the first World Series in Oakland history and the first World Series for the franchise since 1930. The Sporting News named Finley their Man of the Year. (laughs) finley of course loved the attention of course and of course gave himself all the credit for the a's success well he made all the decisions (laughs) made all the uniforms decided all the colors picked picked the songs picked all the food (laughs) so he uh he uh so he re re yes he reprinted the sporting news cover uh, photo on the 1973 A's yearbook, just in case anybody hadn't seen it. Uh, in 1973, sure. a, a rule was put into effect as well, one that Finley had lobbied for uh, years and been a loud proponent of. The American League adopted the designated hitter. Even though Finley wanted the rule, he voted against it. What? Why? Well, because none of the owner, other owners liked his designated runner idea. <laughs> Finley wanted designated runners that could be subbed in and out of games. When the idea was laughed at, Finley vindictively voted against the DH. The motion passed regardless. Why? It makes no fucking sense. Oh, man. So he didn't like his one idea, so he's like, you're not getting my other idea. And he had been a proponent of the DH for like a decade at this point, and they were finally willing to do it, and he was just like, ghost runner on second. (laughs) Um... Finley used his popularity and fame to suggest even more outlandish ideas. Orange baseballs. Yes, it actually happened. Finley was able to persuade the American Leagues and Cleveland officials to use the balls in spring trading game on March 29, 1973. Finley said it would give the game more offense, and he was kind of right. Spalding, though, didn't dye just the hides. They just dyed the whole baseballs. So the stitches were also orange. So the batters complained it was harder to pick up the spin, but easier to make out the ball. Uh, The pitchers got lit up a little bit. It wasn't like that bad. Uh, But they also complained that the ball was slippery Mm -hmm. and this like dye made it crappy, right? So it wasn't the offensive outburst that Finley promised. The A's... Mm -hmm use the balls again on April 2nd in an exhibition game against the Angels. The idea never stuck, though. 
Uh, and from, but it did forever link Finley's image to the color or to orange baseballs. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a Time magazine cover with that was him like with all these orange baseballs behind him and stuff. Uh, it did not take long for Finley to go from being praised for genius to being seen as a monster in the eyes of his players and baseball fans across the country. The Mustache Gang returned to the World Series in 1973. But Mike Andrews made two errors in the 12th inning of Game 2. Finley forced Andrews to sign a statement saying he was injured and sent him home and replaced him with Manny Trio. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's insane. Yeah. that's it, like, listen. You're hurt. You're hurt now. <laughs> you're going to sign this yeah. saying you're hurt. So why couldn't you just be like, you're not playing? Well, he wanted a new person on the roster. So this outraged the A's clubhouse. Right. They were pissed that Finley at Finley and they couldn't believe what he had done. He is pretty audacious. Like not just like to bench him, but to send him home during the world series. Yeah. Uh, for making an error. Um, Sal Bando, who was kind of the captain said, that's a joke. I've seen some Bush things on this club, but this is going too far. The story went national, and Finley's public image would never really recover. The whole team wore Andrew's number on their sleeve during Game 3. <laughs> Obviously, Finley wasn't happy about that. Mm-hmm, no the kidding. commissioner ordered Finley to reinstate Andrews. Andrews made it to New York just in time for Game 4 and got a standing ovation from the Mets crowd in New York City. So they're playing the Mets in this World Series. Did Finley <laughs> like that? Finley did not join in with the applause. (laughs) Some of the A's uh, were happy that people finally understood just how awful Finley could treat people. They gelled around the incident and won their second consecutive World Series in 1973, beating the Mets in a hard-fought seven-game series. Ken Holtzman, who he had made the bold trade for, would end up getting the win in Game 7. So they like galvanized and won this kind of to spite Finley. But the dressing room after the series did not represent that of a World Series winning club. The players were subdued and exhausted from the emotional battle that had taken place between the players and Finley throughout the series. Manager Dick Williams announced to the team that he was quitting and star Reggie Jackson wished he could do the same. When a reporter brought up Finley and how he built the team, Jackson snapped back, please don't give that man credit. It would have been the easiest thing in the world for this team to lie down because of what that man did. He spoiled what should have been a beautiful thing. So that was Finley saying some pre- or sorry Jackson, Jackson plant saying some pretty harsh words about Finley. Uh, on November first of that year, Finley released Mike Andrews, who never played another game in the MLB again. So he released him like as mm-hmm. soon as he could, as soon as the, yeah. su- the off season yeah. started. Finley uh, was a backup infielder, but there was no doubt in many people's minds that the move was a vindictive one by Finley. I meant to say Andrew was the yeah. backup infielder. Yeah. Um, speaking of being vindictive, Finley, uh, Finley, although supportive at first, refused to let Williams out of his contract. The manager that was like, wait, we won. I quit. Like, mm-hmm. I'm tired of this. So at first he was supportive. Now he won't let Finley or Williams out of his contract possibly because he was immediately hired on as to be coaches of the Yankees. So he doesn't like that. Finley demanded compensation. And when the Yankees refused, they were forced leave anyway. But... Well, cause he hated Finley. He oh, right. hated yeah, working. Right. He's like, they just won back to back world series, but he was done. Um, so the Yankees refused to give compensation because Williams left out of his own accord. And Finley was like, well, I'll sue you. Uh, so the Yankees didn't end up hiring him. So he screwed him out of a job. Williams was out of work for nearly a whole year before finding a job with the Angels. So the Angels were pretty lowly. And as you know, what happened later on in the 70s with New York, he kind of just screwed them mm-hmm. out of a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. to, Hold on. Yeah. Pause for one second. All right. One, two, three. Uh, so to transition back from him being an asshole to him being actually innovative and somewhat quirky, Finley had become convinced that speed was one of the keys to winning ball games. 
and he used track stars with no baseball experience. <laughs> Herb Washington, during the 1974-75 seasons, he would use primarily just to steal bases. Although Washington had blazing speed, the sprinter lacked baseball instincts, which created issues on the base pass. Mm -hmm. Washington stole 29 bases, but was caught stealing 18 times and frequently got picked off by opposing pitchers. So it's just a kind of... It was innovative, but it just didn't. It yeah. didn't work. Uh, in 1974, the A's were not as good in the regular season as in years past, but managed to still win 90 games and get themselves back into the playoffs. For a team that was in the middle of a dynasty era, the players seemed more filled with spite than joy. Saul Bando claimed that it was their hatred for Finley that bonded the team together and kept them going. The A's returned to the World Series in 1974, and Finley again found himself at odds with the city of Oakland and at odds again with his players. This hmm. time, it was Catfish Hunter. Hunter had signed a contract that paid him $100,000 per year uh, the previous year, half of which would be paid by Finley into a life insurance fund for him. Uh, news broke at the beginning of the World Series in L.A. that Finley had failed to pay the insurance company the money. Hunter was pissed, obviously, no doubt. Uh, and reportedly planned on leaving the team after the series. Finley came into the clubhouse along with American League president Lee McPhail and with a check for $50,000. Hunter refused to accept the money and told Finley they'd discuss the matter after the series ended. Mm -hmm. So that's not good. No. Especially to start the World Series. Right. Uh, Finley had also not so secretly been courting offers from investors in Toronto and Denver. <laughs> so, well, once again, going back to our last episode, yeah. even with the success, he didn't seem pleased with the attendance in Oakland. He reverted back to some of the old taxi tactics of Kansas City, cutting costs and promotions and advertising, uh, and started trying to convince the brass that the team should move once again. Finley went on national television during the 1974 World Series to complain that Oakland couldn't support a major league team. So, just... Just insane claims yeah, to be made. Yeah, I mean, especially in the World Series. It's yeah. something of somebody to say that if you're you're a terrible team, but you're in the World Series and you can't, like, just... For the third straight year. Yeah. Um Third straight year? Yeah, yeah, third straight year, and fourth winning the West. Right. So even with the sideshow, the A's won the series handily. Their pitchers were dominant. Get this. In the whole five-game series, they won in five games, mm -hmm. uh, the A's used only five pitchers. Holy shit, really? That's it. It is wild for somebody. Five complete games. No. No? No. But just think about 2020 baseball. Yeah. And how many. So, uh it was one of the greatest four-man rotations probably ever. Oh, okay. Vida Blue, Ken Holtzman, Blue Moon Odom, and Catfish Hunter, as well as Hall of Fame closer Raleigh Fingers. Mm -hmm. So each, I think Blue Moon actually did do some some relief work, but you know, Blue Holtzman and Hunter all basically pitched deep. Raleigh Fingers finished off the game. Yeah, and that was basically just how time. it how it went. It was like yeah. seven eight inning starter Raleigh Fingers in, we win. And that happened four out of five games. Um, Finley's A's were now a dynasty. Back-to-back-to-back to back to back world champions. To this day, there are the only other franchise... Or yeah, there's, they are the only other franchise other than the Yankees to have accomplished that feat. Mm -hmm. So they're the only team to win triple back-to-back-to-back to back to back world series other than the Yankees. Yeah, the Yankees did it a couple times because they're the freaking Yankees. Yeah. And we can agree with Charles Finley that they <laughs> they get preferential treatment. Yeah, Maybe damn, not now. Damn Yankees. Um, yeah. Anyway. So with the season over, the attention, of course, shifted to Catfish Hunter. On November 26, 1974, a hearing was held with an arbitrator in New York City. Arbitrator Pete Seitz heard both Finley and Hunter's side of the story, and on December 13th, Seitz sided with Finley, and Catfish was declared a free agent. At this point, there had never been a free agent this good available to the highest bidder. For weeks, teams bid on the pitcher's services, but the Yankees, of course, came out on top, signing him to a five-year deal totaling $3.75 million. Mm -hmm. This was a watershed moment for free agency as players ar around the league took notice to how much they could make on the open market. It was devastating to the A's and to Finley. 
mainly because Finley lost. Yeah. <laughs> um, once again, he had to he had come out looking terrible, and now lost a key part of his dynasty's rotation. The A's were still good, though. In 1975, they won their fifth straight division title, with Vita Blue and Holtzman leading the pitchers, and Gene Tennis and Reggie Jackson having big years at the plate. The magic of the mustache gang seemed to be gone, though. Worn away from the years of exhausting tension between Finley and the players that was masked by the success on the field. The Red Sox swept away the A's with ease, and that was the end of the dynasty. It was over. In 1975... Uh, the arbitrator sites declared even more players from around the league, not from the athletics, but different players mm-hmm. around the league, yeah. free agents. And with that, the reserve clause was basically finished. Right. Free agency was upon the league, and Finley's days of deciding what his players should make was over. Finley's own players despised him, and his rep- the reputation he gained across baseball in recent years as a retaliatory bully did not put him in a good position to sign players. Now that he had to negotiate and deal with the agent at the same level, he couldn't compete. The man who pushed baseball to try new things and evolve was now being destroyed by the new landscape and couldn't operate like he used to. Poor guy. (laughs) The, The writing was on the wall, and Finley traded Holtzman and Reggie Jackson during spring training of 1976. In June of that year, with the A's hovering around 500, their impending free agency on the horizon, Finley sold Vita Blue to the Yankees and Raleigh Fingers to the Red Sox. Commissioner Bowie Kuhn voided the sales, claiming they were not in the best interest of baseball. So that's a clause that the that the commissioner has that he can void right, anything. He can veto those. Yeah. Deals. For, for this, Finley called Kuhn uh, the village idiot and to the press and sued him to reinstate the trades or the sales of the players. The move by the league can only be described as revenge upon Finley uh, for the number of times they were forced to get involved in his disputes and the fact that Finley had attempted to force the owners to vote to remove Kuhn as commissioner in 1975 so this is like you know it's kind of you know you made your bed but at the same point this is the commissioner kind of being a little vindictive himself yeah and being like screw you so they actually the a's ended up like rallying and i think they finished second that year and won like 85 or 87 games so they actually almost made the playoffs again Mm. but at the time they were like it was june and they were like a couple games under 500 yeah so i'm sure once again them him trying to get rid of somebody galvanized the team but they didn't make the playoffs uh finley would actually end up losing that lawsuit years later so it was a big waste of money uh finley lost the last of his star pitchers as well as several key position players to free agency for nothing when third baseman sal bando was asked if it was tough to leave bando responded was it hard to leave the titanic It was actually that's was, the problem. That was, yeah. that was part of the issue there. That's solved, the but issue, yeah. but yeah. yeah, yeah. But if you could, yeah, it was easy. Yeah. Uh, it was not a tough decision to want to leave the Titanic. Not only was everyone departing for free agency, but Charlie O, the beloved mule, also died at the age of twenty. Oh so, no! Yeah, I know. The A's plummeted down the standings, bomb- bottoming out with fifty-four wins in nineteen seventy-nine. Things Ooh, did start to look better with young stars like Ricky Henderson coming up through the ranks in the summer. Uh, yeah, But in the summer of 1980, Finley's wife filed for divorce. She refused to accept a share of the team, and Charles Finley was forced to sell the Oakland A's. The A's were sold to Walter J. Haas Jr. before the 1970, or 1981 season. And with that, Charles Finley's time in baseball was over. Finley had run the team for 20 years and won five division titles and three World Series, but his abrasive, bossy attitude and micromanaging destroyed what could have been something even greater. In 20 years, he had gone through 15 different managers. That's insane. Yeah, it's just, he was such a hard person I to work with. I didn't know this about I him. I know. Like, I always thought this guy was like revered and like loved no he was reviled and hated (laughs) terrible uh so finley was but finley was the hero to his own story he saw himself as a visionary who was treated unfairly by the league and by his fellow owners finley offered this advice to anyone thinking of becoming a baseball owner do not go into any league meeting looking alert or awake Slump down like you've been out of it all, out of being out all night, and keep your eyes half closed. And when it is time, and when it's your turn to vote, uh, you just ask to pass. 
Then you wait to see how others vote, and you vote the same way. Suggest no innovations, make no efforts to change. <laughs> that way you will be very popular with all your fellow owners. So he's, He sounds defeated. Yeah, yeah, and angry and bitter because, yeah. Because he didn't They didn't his like his designated yeah. runner yeah. idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Finley does have a slight point. He was an innovator. He modernized the jersey promotions. He got the league to play World Series games at night to attract more viewers. He was an early proponent of the DH and one of the first GMs to understand the importance of building through the draft. Even when he was being an arrogant prick, he helped design the modern waiver system and free agent market, though accidentally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> However, his arrogance, bullying, and self-destruction left him in a corner with no friends. Once he couldn't make all the decisions and hold all the power over his players, he was finished. When he did hold all the cards, Finley was able to build a dynasty that is still revered to this day. I don't miss baseball, Finley told the Washington Post from his 185-acre farm in LaPorte, Indiana in 1984. Baseball misses me. (laughs) That's such a Charles Finley thing to say. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he went back to his insurance company, had a few setbacks in his business life, and actually ended up losing much of his wealth, but he probably still died pretty rich. On February 19th, 1996, uh, Finley died at the age of 77 in Chicago. And that's the uh, that's Charles. Not Finley. even that old. No, seventy-seven. I mean, yeah, yeah is yeah. decent, but yeah, no, that's uh, that just kept it kept going. Like there was things like just like you, like I'm sure you knew Charles Finley, and we'd come across him many times in our baseball research, but just it just kept going. Like it, like that first part, just about being in Kansas City, could have just been one story. Yeah. The part about the mule could have been one story. Mm-hmm. The A's dynasty could have been just one story yeah but it was all just this it's wild lunatic that made it all happen both good and bad i was gonna say it's such a wild story that finley created a dynasty and had the success that he did almost like despite himself you know oh 100 and the teams could have been like that could have been i mean the a's were a team not a team but the a's were the team yeah. For like the first probably half, maybe a little bit more of the decade of the 70s. Imagine if he had not got rid of those players that he well, just got rid of because well, he was he had mad to. at them. But, well, but no, but he was also, he had to because none of them would re-sign. As soon as they saw the exit, they were like, oh, I'm out of here. Well, that in addition to the fact that like if he just had been a nice person, yeah. you know, he probably would have had all those players wanting to like retain their services in Oakland and maybe you don't see free agency as fast as yeah as we do as well well that's the thing is he, he didn't mean to do it but he did it it's it just if he had just sent that $50,000 check to that insurance company for catfish hunter mm-hmm. maybe the A's dynasty is a four-peat yeah you know or more well yeah, yeah i mean they they lost they lost hunter and that was huge for them and then you know, everybody was was waiting to get out the door after another season or two. All their contracts were coming up. So, so you know, as anybody, like, when you see the exit, you know, you're not, you know, you, you don't push yourself as hard and stuff. So, so mm-hmm. as a, just to win that, like, it's just bummed me out being, like, reading about, like, the second championship. And they were all just so bummed. It was, like, apparently Sparky Anderson or, or came into the clubhouse and was like, I thought you guys won the World Series. <laughs> like... <laughs> Why aren't you guys happy? And everyone was just done. Yeah, Finley's here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think most of us have had that job where you just hate the boss, whether it's your boss directly or, or the owner himself. Or, and then, you know, if you could go and leave elsewhere for more money, I mean, you'd be running out that door. And that's basically he just he, he put himself in a position where once free agency started, nobody wanted to work with him uh-huh. and he was screwed. Uh-huh. Yeah. But yeah, that was a great story. That was a long story. That was like long. you say, it just keeps kept going and going. Yeah. But I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad it was one. It was a long one. I'm glad it was a long one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so thanks so much uh, for for coming here, doing some baseball. Catch us again in a couple weeks. Check uh, out uh, all our friend JP's stuff that we dedicated this episode to. <laughs> Wish she could have been here for this one, but uh, yeah, he had to go deal with a bad back. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All good. Thinking of you, JP, and your back. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, till next time, I'm Sean. And I'm Ed. And we were doing some baseball. Take care. Give us a follow. Give us a review. Bye. Okay, okay bye. <laughs>